Well, in the early days of the world, two people came before the Lord and they presented their sacrifice to Him. The Lord looked down upon them and with one of them, He approved their sacrifice and with the other of them, He disapproved of His sacrifice. He accepted the sacrifice of Abel and He rejected the sacrifice of Cain. And ever since that day has really set the tone for the worship of the Lord. God looks down at all worship that's offered to Him and either He accepts it or He rejects it. And I trust this morning finds you in a place where you want the Lord to accept your worship. Right? Can, can everybody say that? I want the Lord to accept my worship. Well, in our text this morning, we're going to find the Lord rejecting the worship that was offered to Him. They're rejecting it because these people fundamentally weren't honoring the Lord. The title of my message this morning is Don't Forget His Honor. The title really comes from um, the lesson that we need to learn from those whose worship was rejected. They had forgotten to honor the Lord. They worshipped the Lord in their own self-styled way and the Lord rejected them. And so we need to remember to, to honor the Lord so our worship would be accepted. Those in Israel during the days of Malachi... We neglected his honor. You can see this in, in chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. And if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? These people were not honoring the Lord in their worship of Him. Rather, they were despising the altar of the Lord, as it says in verse 6. In so doing, they were defiling the name of the Lord, as it says in verse 7. They're bringing blind, lame, and sick sacrifices to be offered on the altar, clearly transgressing the commandment of the Lord, verse 8. And when the Lord looked down upon their sacrifices, He did not accept them. Rather, actually, He hated them. You can see in verse 10, He wished that they would be removed. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. Oh, there was a fire, there was a sacrifice, but God said it was all useless. And then in verse 11, he says that though you may not worship me acceptably, I'm going to find those who will worship me acceptably. I'll find another place where God, where I am worshipped. And fundamentally, when you think about the assessment of God's worship of these people, it comes back to one thing. Their, their, their actions didn't honor the Lord. They didn't treat Him as He deserved to be treated. They failed to honor Him. And though actually the particulars worked itself out in offering up lame, blind, and sick sacrifices, I really believe that those are more symptoms of the underlying problem. The underlying problem was that they didn't give honor to the Lord. You know, everyone knows what it is to honor somebody else, especially someone in authority over you. You meet somebody who you really respect and, and you submit to them. You speak well of them. You're polite towards them. You make great efforts to help them. You work hard to please them. I mean, it's what you do with your father. It's what you do with your boss. You speak well of those you seek to honor, right? You can do all you can to help them. You submit to them. You do what they tell you. You try to please them. That's the way you honor them. These are the sorts of things the Israelites were failing to do. They, they weren't obeying their heavenly father. Rather, they're offering up sacrifices contrary to his command. God told them to do this, and they flat out disobeyed. They weren't speaking well of their Heavenly Father. They were despising His name, as it says in verse 6. They weren't submitting to their Heavenly Father. Rather, they were rebelling against Him. And as a result, the Lord refused their worship. And 
Today, the focus of our text comes in verses 12 through 14. We see the same thing taking place of everything I've, I've described. And that's why my message this morning is called Part 2. Two weeks ago, we looked at Part 1 from verses 6 through 11. And today, we look at Part 2. And the parallels between verses 6 through 11 and verses 12 through 14 are almost exact. It is astonishing how close these things are. Look at verse 12. The Lord says this. You are profaning my name in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its food, its food is to be despised. I mean, that's almost exactly what the Lord said in verse 7. You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. You say the table of the Lord is to be despised, right? Same words coming over. Defiled food presenting upon the altar falsely. It's to be despised. Look at the end of verse 13. We see you bring what is taken by robbery and what's lame and sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand? And then verse 8, right? The parallel is amazing. He says, when you present the blind for sacrifice, isn't it evil? You present the lame and sick, is it not evil? The same type of thing, a, a, a poor, defective sacrifice being offered up. And then the question, should I, should I accept it from your hand? God says, No. Verse 14 speaks about how the Lord was worthy of worship. He says, I am a great king down there towards the end. Says the Lord of hosts, my name is feared among the nations. That's almost exactly parallel to verse 11. From the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. So the title of my message this morning is appropriate. Don't forget his honor. Part 2. If we're to worship the Lord acceptably as the people of God, we can't forget His honor. That was a theme two weeks ago. And now as we pick up after Easter, the text again, it's going to be the same message. And that's the value of exposition, by the way. We just go through it. If the Lord repeats it twice, we'll repeat it twice because there's probably something that we need to, to learn here. I think especially it is appropriate for us in this day and age where, where worship wars take place all the time. People always ask you, well, how do you worship? How do you worship? Well, these are principles of how it is we ought to worship. Fundamentally, when you want to worship the Lord appropriately, it's all about honoring Him. And we see in verses 12 through 14 that these people in Israel were not honoring the Lord. In verse 12, we see they're profaning the name of the Lord. In verse 13, we find they were bored with their worship. How weary it is. Verse 14, we see that they failed to worship the Lord in in reverence. By way of outline this morning, I simply want to take each of these failures and turn them positively. We need to learn from their, their bad example. Each of these failures have to deal with their improper worship of the Lord. And I want to take those and pull the principle from that. Take it through the cross and figure out how it is that it applies to us. And I think that we can pull these things. I think you can see... What's also interesting is he's talking here about public worship. He's talking about bringing sacrifices to be presented upon the altar. And so also my application this morning is going to be primarily our public worship as we gather together on Sundays. That's kind of where the focus of my applications are. Well, here's my first point. Worship with purity. Worship with purity comes in verse 12. Here we see the accusation against Israel was that they were profaning the name of the Lord. You can see right there how it starts. But you are profaning it. You see that it, what does that it refer to? It refers back in verse 11 to my name. You are profaning my name. 
The word translated profane, halal in the Hebrew is a pretty common word in the Old Testament. It simply means to pollute or defile or make dirty or desecrate. The idea behind the word is that it would um, does something to make something else unclean and detestable. Make it stink, make it sour, make it awful, make it bad, make it dirty. As these people came to worship the Lord, imagine this. As they came to worship the Lord in the name of the Lord, they were actually soiling His name and bringing it through the mud. It's astonishing when you think about it. In verse 11, the Lord said, From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, My name will be great among the nations. And yet, through their half-hearted worship, these people of Israel were bringing the Lord's name down. Rather than making it great, they were making it small. And in doing so, slinging dirt upon His name. And the Lord tells the priests how exactly it was that His name was being profaned. He said, You are profaning My name, verse 12, in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled. As for its fruit, its fruit is to be despised. Now, this reference here to the table of the Lord is certainly a reference to the altar upon which the sacrifices were offered. It's not talking about the table of showbread. It's talking about the, the, the fruit offered, right? the food offered, the animals offered upon the, the sacrifice the altar. The food that goes upon the table is a reference to the animals and grain that will be sacrificed there because that's the whole context of it. So you're talking about these lame or sick animals you're bringing or things brought by robbery or treachery or, or blind animals. It's the animals is the food that's offered upon the altar. And in some sacrifices, part of the sacrifice was burned and the other part was actually eaten as food by the priests. But this altar was being profaned. You say, how is it profaning the name of the Lord? Well, it was bringing God's name down by offering substandard sacrifices upon the altar. God had set a standard for the sacrifice that needs to come upon the altar and they brought something less than that. In that way, they defiled the name of the Lord. At the end of verse 13, you see a sense of, of what kind of things were offered upon the altar. The things taken by robbery. They stole somebody's sheep to put on there. One that was lame, couldn't walk very well, or sick, maybe had eczema or sores on it. Maybe it was weak and skinny. And such actions to bring a substandard gift before the Lord really profanes the name of the Lord. I mean, doesn't this make sense? If you give a gift to somebody, doesn't, doesn't the, the kind or quality of your gift that you offer and that you bring tell somebody about your heart towards them? You give someone a nice gift and they're appreciative to know that you care for them and you appreciate them. You want to serve them and honor them. But if you give somebody a second-hand gift, some dirty or polluted or broken gift. What are you doing? You're communicating dishonor to the people to whom you're giving that. Well, I want to give you an illustration of this. In our home, we have a couch. It's in our basement. Now, some would debate whether you call it a couch or not. <clears throat> I'd admit it, it is kind of old. As I thought about it, I can't... It was in my parents' house, and I can't ever remember a time when we didn't have this couch. So, I just turned 40 about a week ago, so it's about 40 years old. I will admit it, it does it is a bit junky looking this couch is and I will admit that it sags a lot. Okay, it's it, you know it kind of does does that thing. I would contend it's comfortable. My wife would say it's it's not. I think it's comfortable. But I I think not only is it comfortable but it provides a great plaything for our children. They can jump on it, they can fight 
with pillows. You know, they can take the pillows and throw them around the room. It's okay. They can drink their red lemonade or Kool-Aid on the couch. Not a problem. It's a perfect plaything. In fact, I remember having a couch like this in the basement of my house growing up. And uh, <clears throat> I remember, you know, you've got a couch that's got three legs and the leg in the middle. The leg in the middle was totally gone, but the couch sagged so much that, you know, it became a third leg right there in the middle. I liked sitting on it because it was more like, you know, your legs were straight out when you're on this couch. I remember high jumping on this couch. I remember pole vaulting on this couch in our basement. And I guess I envision our children having the same sort of fun with this couch in our house as well. Now, my wife is of a different opinion, all right? <clears throat> I, I, I asked her yesterday, I said, Vaughn, what don't you like about it? And so here's her list. She said, well, first of all, <laughs> said, first of all, it's an eyesore. She pointed out the fact that it's clearly broken and it's falling apart. She says it sheds like a dog, only it sheds tacks, sharp tacks, rather than hair. This thing is, she, she said the other day she was moving it and it was like shaking, like the whole thing is, is, is out of kilter. It's her opinion that we don't need to have a couch in the basement to jump on like a trampoline. She says it clutters our house, like it just clutters the basement. She pointed out yesterday that in fact the room where it sits right now was a, a total mess. She said, Steve, even right now the room's a total mess because the kids were jumping up and down and we, we allow this in this room. We have a playroom in our basement. They're jumping up and down to kind of, having a party and and it was a mess but I'm thinking you know they they have a lot of fun final thing she says it's just a burden of something else we have in our house well there's the saga of our couch my wife thinks I've been blinded by some type of sentimental thing that I have remembering my past and, and probably but I think we'll keep the couch for some time to go Okay, now, now here's, here's the couch. You've seen the couch. Now, suppose that there's someone who got married just recently. Life of the congregation, life of family, life of friends that we know of. And, you know, they, they um, put down, went to Target, right, and visited their um, bridal registry and put, you know, all these gifts that they like. And one of them, they put this nice couch, nice dark green couch. It would fit nicely in their living room where they plan on living, right, made of high-quality microfiber suede material that would last them all forever and... Now, suppose that shortly after they were married, we show up our house in a pickup truck with our couch on the back with a big red bow on it and said, we think this couch would be perfect for your house. We saw in the registry you want a couch. This one would be perfect for you. Besides, when you have kids someday, they can pole vault on this couch. It should be great. Now, what do you think this couple would think? Couch is ugly. Doesn't match their green room totally worthless. It deserves to be taken to the dump. I think giving this couch to these people would dishonor them. Nobody wants this couch. There's only one person in the world who wants this couch. (laughs) Well, that gives you a little bit of flavor what was taking place with the people of Israel in these sacrifices. They were offering lame and sick sacrifices. Lord, these animals weren't worth much. The people believe, though, that they were worthy to be sacrificed. Well, it's good enough for God. Like saying, this couch is good enough for these people. That's not right. They're giving testimony to their view of the Lord. He can have the leftovers, but such actions were profaning His name. You know, in the Old Testament, when God gave instructions about what should be offered up on the altar, He was very clear in terms of what should be offered. 
He always required sacrifice to be perfect, without defect. And, and you know what? It was for a purpose. It was to communicate to the people of God and to the nations around what type of God is. God is a God who's full of holiness and full of purity and He's to be worshipped with the best. He wanted perfect animals to be brought to Him to show how much they value the Lord and how majestic He is. Look, we bring the best of our flock because God is worthy of the best. And anything less than the best is not good enough for God. Two weeks ago, we spent some time going through a bunch of passages in Leviticus to show you time and time again, the animal needs to be without defect. It needs to be without defect. Without defect. It can't be old. It's only one year old, right? A lamb. All these different things. But it's got without defect, without defect. And in Leviticus 22 especially, the entire chapter deals with how this animal should be. And then it comes right at the end of the chapter. Listen to what Leviticus 22 says about how these sacrifices, why these sacrifices were be offered because they communicate His holiness. Leviticus 22:29. When you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten by the priests on the same day. You shall leave none of it till the morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep My commandments to do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane My holy name but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus 22.32, let me read again. You shall not profane My holy name by bringing a substandard sacrifice. That's exactly the words used right here in verse 12. You are profaning My holy name. Exactly the same idea. The context is the same. It's about sacrifices. The language are the same. The same words are used. And way back in Leviticus, the Lord taught and instructed the priests that if they offered up defiled sacrifices, they'd profane His name. They'd bring Him down. And the principal application to us is really that our worship really ought to be pure worship. We ought not to bring substandard sacrifices. We ought to act and behave in such a way that our, our life is consistent right, with Christ. Right? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, Ephesians Chapter 4, verse 1. We ought to walk in purity. And we come to worship the Lord. We need to come with a pure sacrifice. I'm not sure you realize this today. Tell you, oh, we don't have to bring sacrifice. Well, you know what? We don't offer bulls and goats anymore. We don't hear the bleeding of sheep at church services. But we have a sacrifice that we bring before the Lord. And the good news for us this morning is that we have a perfect sacrifice. Our sacrifice isn't blemished in any way. The sacrifice that we have that we know God will accept is Jesus Christ. He is a pure sacrifice. Peter says his blood was precious blood. He was unblemished. He was spotless. And better than that, God received his sacrifice. This sacrifice was so good that we don't need to sacrifice again and again and again and again like some in the Catholic Church believe. It's like all in the Catholic Church believe. We don't offer up Christ on the altar. No, no, no. He was offered once, as the book of Hebrews says, once, 2,000 years ago, once for all. The sins of those who would believe were nailed upon the cross. We simply need to come in faith, though, clinging to this perfect sacrifice. And we should come and worship before the Lord. We say, God, Christ is our sacrifice. That is the best. That's what we have to offer and you know that through Christ it is that our sins are forgiven. It's through Him that we can be made pure and righteous and holy. And it's through Him that our offerings up to God are acceptable in His sight. 
In fact, it's only through the sacrifice of Christ you'll ever have a hope of having your worship accepted before the Lord. When you worship, worship Him with purity. Second, when you worship, worship with enthusiasm. Worship with enthusiasm. I get this from verse 13. Where the Lord speak to this people, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it. Because Jake read from the ESV, I think it goes something like this, my, how wearisome it is. And you, you snort at it. Just, it's, a, it's an attitude of contempt. It's an attitude here of how the priests were bored with the worship of God. How tiresome it is. How weary it is. It's like, whatever. They'd spent their time in the temple. They'd offer their sacrifice to the Lord. If they'd offered one animal up on the altar, they'd offered up 150 animals on the altar. Just to them, one animal, the other. It's so normal, so regular, so boring, so tiresome, so wearying. And I get the sense there's no enthusiasm in the worship. It's all in a standard day work at the office. Every day seemed the same. I mean, think about a life of a priest. The priest gets up in the morning and checks the incense to make sure there's enough to burn throughout the day. Each morning, the priest would take the laver and make sure it's all filled with water. Then he'd wash his hands and purify his feet according to the ritual. Each morning, then, he'd start with a morning sacrifice. He'd go out and find a, a lamb, one year old. In fact, he'd find two lambs, one year old, and take, take them both like this. He'd take one and he'd offer it up for the morning sacrifice every morning. He'd offer it upon the altar and smoke along with the associated grain offering and the meal offering. And then, having prepared the temple for worship, he'd open the gates to a crowd of people coming in. And the people would come in, each of them bringing their animals. And um, as they would come, they'd present their animals before the priest confess of sins. The priest would accept the confession, take their animal, slaughter it before them. If you're a priest, you, you drag that animal. Right? Once you slaughter it, drag it and, and put it upon the altar, let it go up and smoke and say, there's your offering. And the people would come, you'd say, well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And they'd go on the way. And then like a postal worker, you'd say, next! And another family would come. And they would, would come, maybe someone individually or Maybe some uh, uh, you know, family would come. Father, present the animal for the Lord con- to you. Confess their sins. You'd accept their confession. You'd take the animal. You'd slit its throat. Boom, it'd go limp. You'd have to drag it and you'd drag it across the temple. Then you'd... You know, that would burn up. And you know, then you'd say, okay, you go on your way. The Lord will bless you and keep you. And then again, you'd say, next. Another group would come up here and you'd offer this time after time day after day, over and over. By the time the sun was going down, the day was about finished, you'd get that other lamb that you set aside and you'd take that one, you'd slit its throat, and you'd throw it upon the altar for the evening sacrifice to be happened every day. Offer it up along with the associated grain and drink offerings that were supposed to be done. You'd check the oil and the incense, make sure it's still burning, make sure it's got enough oil. Maybe you'd fill it up a little bit, fill it so it burns all night long, and then you'd go home exhausted. You'd go home to your tent and collapse of fatigue. And then the next day, what'd you do? You'd just get up to face another day at the office. And the next day is like the previous day, and the next day after that's like the day you just had, and again and again and again, facing long lines of people. Animals, dirty, bloody, butcher, put them up. Now, to be sure, there were some days which varied this up a little bit. The Sabbath, you'd get a rest. 
But every Sabbath day, you'd have to change the showbread. Um, some additional sacrifices need to be offered up on top of the daily sacrifices. Uh, your routine would be changed a little bit. And then the high holy days, those would be fun days, right? And the Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, a huge crowd would gather to watch the high priest go in and offer up the once-a-year sacrifice. That was pretty exciting. And on other sacrificial days, like uh, the Passover, but that only just added to your work about all the other sacrifices that you need to do. And these priests became weary of this. They said in verse 13, how, how tiresome it is. The commands of God became a burden to them. And 1 John 5.13 says, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. But they became a burden to Him. There was little or no enthusiasm for their work. They were tired of offering up the same sacrifices day after day, year after year. You'd think these priests would come to realize at some point that they, their work of standing daily, ministering and offering time after time the, the sacrifices could never take away sin. You'd think these priests would anticipate the day where these sacrifices could be done. And I think they were all anticipating the greater sacrifice in Christ Jesus. And, and with such a hope of a, of a greater sacrifice coming, they could have got past the mundane day after day after day as they see a bigger significance on the horizon. That's how hope works. When you have hope, you can endure the mundane because you know of what's coming. That's how God motivates us for heaven. He says, listen, the, the momentary light afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the glory to, be, to, to come to us. And so you look towards the hope, right? They look towards the day where the final sacrifice should be done and they could endure the daily sacrifices. But they weren't looking like that. They weren't looking like that. They were tired of it, bored of it. And when you take this picture of a priest, you begin to see how it is that um, people would bring lame and sick sacrifices. Uh, imagine somebody in this big line, right? They're, they've been waiting for an hour since early morning. They come and then they come and you offer. And what happens when you see that it's lame or it's sick? What if you, as a priest, would say? Um, you know, I'm sorry, this, this sheep is lame. You need to take it back, and uh, you know the requirements here. Take it back. And, and what do you think that, that man confessing his sins would say to you? I've been standing in line for an hour, and I've brought my animal here before you. It's going to cost me a lot to go out and get another animal. Then I'm going to go back to the back of the line. It's going to take me half my day to be here. And, you know, that's customer service. Who's king? Customer is king. So you say, okay, I'll tell you what, this time we'll let it go. But next time, but next time. And, and what's the customer going to say? Oh, yeah, next time, next time. I promise I'll bring the best of my flock. Absolutely, I'll bring it. You know, and you offer this thing up, and the next time, what does he come with? So oh, it worked last time. I'm going to bring a faulty one again this time. Why offer up my best? And I think that's the idea. Verse 14, cursed be the swindler as a male in his flock. He vows it probably before the priest, but when he goes away, it's another time he sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. I think for a priest, he's going to bring upon grief upon himself to make a stand for purity. Stand for righteousness is going to be difficult. That was the life of the priest, his life of the worshipers, all of them going through the motions, seeking to put a dead animal upon an altar fire to please and pacify their own consciences. But you know what? They... They pacified their consciences, but God hated their offerings. The gift wasn't, wasn't worth it. You know, in our family, we have an aunt who's notorious for giving secondhand gifts. 
Yesterday, in fact, I called several of my family members and just um, asked them to recall some of the gifts that, that they remember her giving to them or giving others. And one of my family members said this, oh yeah, she's the queen of useless gifts, that's for sure. One of my sisters recalled a time when she was little and this aunt of ours gave her a Dr. Seuss book, The Cat in the Hat. Really nice, appropriate, appropriate present. But on, on the cover, there was this coffee mug stain that was really big, like right there on the cover. And she just remembered that. It's like, where'd this come from? Garage sale for five cents. Another family, uh, remember, another member of the family um, remembered how this aunt had given one of my sisters a purse that was like not particularly nice, but was clearly used and old. And here, this would be nice for you. And we're talking Christmas presents. Um, one of my sisters remembered the time when she's given about 20 copies of this aunt with her husband. Like these little, you know, I, I, I've got three, three by two pictures. 20 copies. Well, you can give it to your brothers and sisters. Well, we've only got five of us in the family. It's, well, what's she going to do? It's like useless. My parents told me at the time they happened to be visiting her and she was decluttering her house trying to give my parents all this junk as gifts. And uh, she, my mom talked about how um, there were these well-loved stuffed animals. You know, like, you know how they get worn out. You know, all the fur and stuff. They're down to just the fabric and... Here, have these. No, no, no. I'm trying to give them household items. And my parents say they rejected her gifts because they had no use for them. Well, that's very similar to what the Lord did here. He rejected the gifts that were brought to them. Why? Because they were bringing sacrifices that were the leftovers. They weren't worthy of the Lord. And if you offer up half-hearted sacrifices like these priests did, don't expect the Lord to accept your offerings. Don't accept Him to accept your worship. He'll reject it. In fact, at the end of verse 13, he shows how he will reject them. He says, should I receive that from your hand? Says the Lord. It's a rhetorical question. Of course he shouldn't receive them, that offering from their hand. Indeed, the Lord was refusing their offering. It's clear as day when you look upon what God said in verse 14. Cursed be the swindler as a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord because I am a great king. I won't be brought down to your level of lame and sick sacrifices is what God was saying. And you see again here how God returns to the majesty and greatness of Himself. That's the theme of chapter 1, verse 11. From the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In chapter 1, verse 5, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. In verse 5, be magnified. If you have a, a note or maybe you have a different translation, it says, will be great. The Hebrew word there is gadol. His name will be great. It will be gadol. It will be lifted high and exalted. Chapter 1, verse 11, same thing. My name will be gadol. It will be great among the nations. And the theme comes right here, verse 14 as well. I am a great king, a gadol king. I will be great. I'm far greater than you are. Far more worthy than a half-hearted sacrifice. Well, I think fundamentally the problem was that they're dishonoring the Lord and that their worship was unenthusiastic. See, the problem with boring, unenthusiastic worship of the Lord is that it brings the Lord down. 
It makes other things greater than He is. Okay, like for instance, I'm, I'm imagining, okay, totally hypothetically here, okay? I'm, I'm imagining though, okay? Someone comes to church to worship the Almighty, Creator, Sovereign Lord of the universe and arrives right on time or maybe a little bit late. And um, throughout the service, they endure with little interest on their face. Look at their watch. When is, when is this guy going to stop talking? As soon as the service ends, bang, they're out the door. And on their way home, they complain about how long the service was. They grab a snack to eat. They go home, promptly sit in front of their television set and watch a three-hour football game with enthusiasm and cheering and joy and excitement. Now, let me ask you, how does that make God look? Does it diminish God? When we find our pleasure in other things greater than our pleasure in God and the worship of Him, it just takes God down and diminishes Him and lifts other things up. And that's what unenthusiastic worship does. But when we worship the Lord with enthusiasm, it makes God great. When you come into the service with an expectation and a joy of worshiping the Lord, God is honored, right? You should understand that. And Bob Bixby's a, a friend of mine. He's a fellow pastor in town. He pastors uh, Morningstar Baptist Church, a good man. He said about enthusiastic worship, he said it this way. He says, I love the congregational singing at my church. Our congregation sings with gusto. We forget poise. <clears throat> we disregard finesse. We just belt it out. You should hear our hundredfold sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name after message in the person of Jesus Christ. When a congregation feels its redemption individually, it brings the roof down corporately. Jesus is talking about enthusiasm there, right? I have brothers who talk long and hard about style. But the style that thrills me is probably the same style that pleases God. An uninhibited noise that bursts out of a heart-making melody. It's a biblical axiom. Redeemed people will sing. And blessed are the redeemed who are in a congregation where performance and professionalism and special music and talent ex exhibitions are deliberately downplayed. Blessed are the redeemed that don't have to stand and hum to the crooning of a worship team because the entire congregation is the worship team. The music that dominates our church must be congregational. Unredeemed people will feel out of place in the midst of the redeemed and this should especially be true when we are singing there's a mysterious sound that issues from the lungs of uninhibited redeemed folk. Monotones harmonize with maestros. Teftone growlers blend in with the pitch tone perfect vocalists. The mysterious sound is the sound of a heart melodies uniting congregationally before the Lord. It's a beautiful sound. It's the joyful noise of redemption. And I say Bob has got it exactly right. Fundamentally, it's not a matter of style or aesthetics or instruments to please the Lord. It's a matter of enthusiastic worship from the heart that seeks to lift high the name of the Lord as high and mighty and majestic and sovereign and holy and worthy of all of our praise. When the people of God come and worship Him in boredom, the Lord's dishonored. So you want to honor the Lord in your worship? Worship with purity. Bring your best sacrifices. Bring Christ. Walk worthy of His calling. Worship with enthusiasm. May it be heartfelt, engaging worship before the Lord. And thirdly, worship with reverence. That comes at the very end of verse 14. 
The Lord says, My name is feared among the nations. Quite frankly, Israel and the priests had lost their fear of the Lord. They were complacent about the ways in which they had worshipped. They didn't care that their sacrifices were substandard, which profaned God's name. They didn't care that they weren't really too excited about the worship. They didn't come before the Lord with the healthy fear that you need. Like, ah, whatever. Done this before. We'll do it again. God accepted it before. He'll accept it again. I had no fear that you know, God is, is up there evaluating me and my worship. I need to honor Him with my best. None of that. You know, it would have been well for them if they'd remember back to the early days of the priesthood. It would have been well for them to remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu when they came before the Lord without reverence. Do you remember what happened to them? Kids, any kids remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu? They offered the Lord. What happened, Preston? Lord burned them fire from heaven, come down and torch them. Said, You're not giving me a good sacrifice? I'll get a good sacrifice. And he sacrificed those two guys. Listen to Leviticus 10, verse 2. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. They died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It's what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Failing to treat the Lord as holy, the Lord rejected their offering. Fire came from heaven and consumed them on the spot. They were quickly replaced by their two younger brothers, Eleazar and Ithamar, who were told, don't mourn. Don't mourn for them, lest the Lord kill you as well. And you think about these priests in Malachi's day, the only reason they're standing is because of the mercy of God. Mercy of God. They may not have been offering up strange fire before the Lord as Nadab and Abihu were, but their crime was just as serious. They were offering up faulty sacrifices before the Lord. They were not coming before the Lord with reverential fear. You know, imagine the guy coming with a blind sheep. If you feared the Lord, you'd say, No, you can't you can't have that because that's dishonoring to the Lord. And you'd reject him. I don't care how much that customer is going to yell at you and scream at you and curse you and not be, not be happy with you and the inconvenience that it causes. Say, you know what? But I'm not going to offer that to the Lord. Just wouldn't accept a half-hearted sacrifice. The simple admonition for us, we need to worship the Lord with a reverential fear. We need to realize that the God we worship is a God before whom the whole world quakes. Listen to... Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The strength of the King loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. And you get a sense there of how... To worship like that, you need to worship with reverence before the Lord. Fear of Him consuming you on the spot. It's only the shelter of Christ that, that shields that fire coming down upon us. In Revelation 15, we get a glimpse of heaven where they're singing the song of Moses. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. 
Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before You, for Your righteous acts have been revealed. It's the kind of worship we need. A worship that realizes the holy, awesome terror of the Lord. We need to work hard at worshiping the Lord for who He is and realize that apart from the blood of Christ, we're undone. We're ruined apart from the blood of Christ. Now, as you think about this application about fearing the Lord, it does balance my number two application about worship with enthusiasm. You know, there's a, there's a way that of enthusiasm that greatly misses the fear of the Lord. A minister of music can stand up Start of a service. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. I can't hear you. Hey, good morning, everybody. Let's say it louder. Are you excited to worship the Lord? We've come this morning to worship the Lord. Worship Him. Is that is that like does that miss the reverential fear aspect of it? Oh, sure, you might get some people happy, clappy, enthusiastic, but you know what? Maybe they've missed the fear of the Lord. So we got we have some balance here in terms of I think it's deep heart-rooted, passion, enthusiasm coupled with a reverential fear of God combines together to worship the Lord in a way that's pleasing to Him. People can be so happy-clappy that they just miss the reverence of the Lord. Well, if the priests in Malachi's day had these things, if they would have worshipped with purity, if they would have worshipped with enthusiasm, and if they would have worshipped with reverence, you know, they wouldn't have profaned the name of the Lord by offering up their lame and sick sacrifices. They wouldn't have. They would have understood the fear of the Lord. They wouldn't have grown tired of His worship. They would have worshipped the Lord with reverence. You know, it's my prayer and my aim and my goal that these things would be true of Rock Valley Bible Church this day. But you know, in order to do these things, it's going to take some time. You need some preparation. You simply can't show up and have these things happen. You've got to do some thinking beforehand. You've got to do some preparing. When you come to Rock Valley Bible Church on Sunday morning to present your sacrifice of praise, the question comes, have you prepared to do that? Think about a Major League Baseball player. When I go to a ball game, which isn't often, but when I go to a ball game, 15, 20 minutes ahead of time, see these guys you know, throwing the ball around a little bit. But you know, a Major League Baseball player arrives at the ballpark hours beforehand. They spent time warming up. They spent time stretching. They taped their ankles. They've tended to their minor injuries. They've taken the whirlpool. Maybe they've taken some wind sprints to maintain their endurance. They've taken batting practice, taken fielding practice, work on the fundamentals. They've, they've studied their opposing pitcher and how it is that he pitches them. They've studied where they plan to, how they plan to pitch the other people and where they plan to play in the field against their opponent. They've been careful to eat properly in anticipation for their peak performance of the game. These players don't show up 15 minutes beforehand, not thinking about their game at all. Okay, I'm ready to play. Someone like that will be in the minor leagues in a heartbeat. Rather much preparation. I think there is a comparison to what takes place on Sunday mornings. You know, there's some preparation that needs to take place to worship the Lord honorably. Particularly Sunday morning. You, you ought to come, right, meditating upon Scriptures, bringing your mind ready to engage with God. Don't expect Jake to do that by a simple reading of six verses of a psalm on Sunday morning. You just you can't transition that fast. It's got to be, you know, perhaps Sunday morning, Saturday night. Maybe Saturday night it means... Get into bed on time so that you can come refreshed and energized, sufficient energy to worship on Sunday morning. 
Maybe it's coming a little bit early so you don't have the big rush on Sunday morning. Maybe, let me just put a suggestion. Maybe it means making an effort to come to prayer meeting. You know, we had about 30 people in prayer meeting. I'd love to see about 100 in prayer meeting. I know from my own heart, it just it just gets it ready for our Sunday worship here. You know, you're all invited. You all come. We just meet right here in this back room. And we just pray, pray and we plead to the Lord. That's a great way even to think about preparing for Sunday morning. brings your 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 mind into a reverential way. It puts, puts some time. We spend time praying to the Lord for many different things. But if you just rush to church on Sunday morning, don't spend any time meditating, thinking about the... The Word of God. You know, think about next week, okay? Malachi chapter 2, 1 through 9. You can think about, meditate on that, ready to go. Next week, Psalm 16. It's going to be what starts our worship. We're going to sing about Christ. <laughs> Why don't you prepare? Think about that. And you know what? It might also have to do some preparation throughout the week. Life is busy, and I know it's busy. There's so many things in this world. They're crying for our attention. We have ball games to take our kids to. We have theater practice to take our kids to. Maybe you're camping on the weekends. Maybe you're doing this. Maybe you're taking a trip, right? Maybe you've got season tickets to the Ice Hogs or River Hawks, spending your evenings at the ballpark. You know, none of those things are wrong. They're all okay. But when all of them have all of you and God has none of you, that's a problem. That's a problem. There's a way in which some of these activities that we get involved in can distract us from honoring the Lord throughout our week. And so let me just ask, do you schedule time during the week to honor the Lord? Do you schedule time during the week to, to set your mind upon God's Word? Do you schedule time during the week to pray? You know, I love the way that my wife has done this over the years. Is uh, uh, schedule in the morning as we try to get up before 8 o'clock, do our family Bible reading before then. 8 to 8.30 is breakfast. From 8.30 to 9 is quiet times, our kids in the room. Now, we can do that. We're homeschooling. Uh, many of you are. You can do that as well. If you're public schooling your kids or Christian schooling your kids, you just need to think about a different time. Maybe just try to schedule in the life of your family, right? When am I going to do this? Maybe it means getting to bed early enough to get up early enough. But maybe the things of life schedule everything and you miss it. So what does God get? He gets the leftovers. Does God like the leftovers? He doesn't. He doesn't like it when we fall asleep and praying and reading His Word with an exhausted mind. Without time communing with God, you know what? Sin comes easily. And when sin comes easily, it's difficult to worship the Lord with purity. That's the bottom line. Without time communing with God, you become spiritually dull. And when you're spiritually dull, it's very difficult to worship God enthusiastically. Without time scheduled in to commune with the Lord, you can easily forget His holiness. Put your attention upon the people of this earth. And it makes, dif- makes it difficult to worship the Lord with reverential fear that's due His name. You can just schedule these things in. Walk holy. Walk in a manner worthy of His calling. And be busy about your weeks. That Sunday morning, as here, the time of worship coming in would be the time of great joy. Great adoration where you're lifting high the name of our great and glorious God. Oh, with Rock Valley Bible Church, may we worship with purity, may we worship with enthusiasm, and may we worship with reverence. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this time to, to take three little verses and really to expand upon them and maybe to add a lot of meat, a lot of thoughts, 
Lord, upon these, these three points, I just fear for us that we would be like Israel. I fear for us that we would be like these priests. I think of next week when we'll describe the punishment of the priests in graphic detail, how awful it was. And Lord, the, the punishment may not be literal upon us today, but spreading refuse on our faces is pretty terrible. It's the way that you have described your attitude towards those who worship you in a dishonoring way. I, I would pray and plead, Lord, that you would convict our hearts so as we come to Rock Valley Bible Church on Sundays, that um, we would not just come on that day just thinking, oh, we're going to worship the Lord, but we would spend some time Saturday night. We'd spend some time Sunday morning. We'd spend some time throughout the week really anticipating the day when we as a church can gather together to give you great honor and glory and blessing. So I pray you dig into our hearts. Give these priorities well to us. May we worship with purity. and May we worship with enthusiasm. May we worship with reverence. Lord, all to your glory. We pray in Christ's name.